Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. We are going to continue this week in uh, looking at the first couple of chapters of Acts, as we have been since Pentecost a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to be in verses 42 through 47 this, uh, this week. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in one of the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, the one that is in the seats around you now belongs to you. You get to take it home under the condition that... Uh, that you read it. Uh, that's the only thing that we ask. And so uh, that one is, uh, is yours. Acts 2, 42 through 47. So a couple of weeks ago was Pentecost, and we looked at after Jesus's death, resurrection, ascension, uh, that he sent his Holy Spirit to his church to empower them for the work of mission and to be the church, the, the Holy Spirit, God's power and presence with us uh, in, uh, in this life and in the work that he has called us to. Last week, we then looked at as the Spirit empowered the apostles to, to move from this place of fear and being locked in a room because they were scared of what was outside of the doors uh, to bold proclamation of the gospel and ministry, we looked at Peter's sermon a little bit last week, and we looked at, uh, at uh, the response to his sermon in particular, where the people heard him talk about the crucified and risen Christ, and they said, well, what should we do? What should our response be? Uh, and so Peter tells them, that they need to repent and to be baptized and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So to repent, to turn away from their sins, to turn towards Christ in faith and, that, and to be baptized, to be brought into the church. That's what baptism is about, entrance into the church and that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So all very exciting things. So what happens next? It says in, here in Acts 2 that at the end of Peter's sermon that 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ and entered into the church. So they went from a church of a few dozen people to a church of a few thousand people all in the matter of a couple of hours. So what did they do? So it says here that the first thing that they did was that they hired Jesse Merriweather as their executive director um, to try to figure out how in the world to handle 3,000 people and what to do about that. But uh, that one might not be in your translation. That's here in our Redeemer translation of the scripture. Um, but uh, uh, so, so what, what happened? What did they do as the church? And this is an important question for us because if this is the first local church, this is the first local Christian church, Finding out what they did is really important if we're looking at what should we be as a contemporary, modern, local church, uh, what should we be doing? Um, I, many of you know that, that um, aside from my role here as dean of the cathedral, one of the other roles that I have is that I'm the canon for church planting for the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America. So all that to say, I helped oversee our church planting work throughout North America. 
Through that work, um, I have helped to train hundreds of church planters. And so we, get, we gather groups of planters together. These are people who are coming together to learn how to start a new church. How do you, where do you even begin with that? And when we train them, one of the first questions that we ask and discuss is, well, before we talk about how do you plant a church, what is church? What is church? The theological term for this is ecclesiology. What is our understanding of, of what the church is and what it should be about? And you would be surprised at how many people are trying to start churches and have never asked this question. What is it? They want to know how. How do we do it? How do we get people in a place? But they're not asking, what exactly is it that we are planting? And when we ask, when we ask that, what is church, most oftentimes our mind goes immediately to Sunday morning gathering, like we are in right now. And this is an important part of our expression of our life together. It's very important. But it's not the fullness and completeness that as, as wonderful as it would be as a pastor to only work on Sunday mornings, I promise you that we're pretty busy the rest of the week as well. What's, what is it? What, what is the church about? What, what should, how should we look at church? And here's what oftentimes happens in church planting, is that people come together and they go, okay, we, we are starting a new church. They get a whiteboard and, a, and an erase, a dry erase marker, and they go, okay, what do we want church to be? What do we want to make church into? Uh, and they let's say, let's brainstorm on this whiteboard. And this is how we start to get a definition of what it is that we're planting and what it is we're doing. The problem is with that is that that is saying that there is no objective form of the church. In other words, that there is no church apart from what we and our desires and our preferences want to make it into being. It seems like if we're right, as we have looked the last couple weeks from Scripture, that God has been at work in some pretty powerful ways in what we've called redemptive history, all from creation into the fall, into the redemption, the process of redemption, leading all the way up to Jesus, who then promised the Holy Spirit and told them that they would receive power and they would be his witnesses and form the church, I think that God probably has a plan for his church as well. Like he didn't, he didn't give the Holy Spirit and he was smiling because he was seeing all these people come to know him and then the smiles like slowly fade from his face and he goes, I didn't think about what to do next, right? <laughs> Gabriel, Michael, come here. We got to have an emergency meeting. All right, we gave the Holy Spirit. What should think of some things? What should we make church into, right? Like I got out the divine whiteboard and started writing on it. No, he has a plan for all of this. Here's one of the ways you can see this is because if you, have you ever wondered how they baptized 3,000 people in one day? Like just logistically, how do you do that, Really? Our services go long here when we do baptisms with like three or four people, right, at the same time. And so how do you do that? 3,000 people. So I had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem a few years ago. And if you've ever been there, you can go onto the temple steps where all of this took place. You can stand on the same steps. They're still there. Same stone where these apostles preached this uh, and where all of this happened. And so to get to those steps, you walk along this boardwalk, kind of an elevated boardwalk, almost like you're going to the beach or something, right? It's a, a, a boardwalk. And when you look down below you, there are, there are archaeological digs that have, uh, and excavations that have, have taken place there. And what you see are hundreds of ritual baths. 
They're carved into the stone of steps into, down into a pool. And these were used in the Old Testament of the ritual cleansing before you came to the temple. So all of this, God's plan was in place of these ritual cleansing that, would, that you would enter into before you went into the temple. And now, on the day of Pentecost, they need to baptize 3,000 people, and there just happens to be hundreds of pools there. Like, maybe God had some forethought in all of this, right? So now, if he has given the Spirit to his people and baptized them, uh, and they are, they are the church, it seems like the question that we should ask is not say, what do we think church should be? What can we make it into? The first question we should ask is, what does God have in store and in plan for his church, and how do we be faithful to that? That's a different perspective, right? One is an anthropocentric, which means man-centered, human-centered, where we, we are the ones who create the church. Or another is theocentric. It's God-centered. What did God make his church to be, and how are we faithful to it? It's that second, that theocentric view that I hope that we hold and continue to press more deeply into here at Redeemer. And so this is why Acts 2, 42 through 47 is so important because it describes the earliest church. And if water is always purest, closest to a source, let's go here to see a description of the church so that we can then also look at our church today, and how do we live into what the way that they lived uh, and how they, uh, how they understood church to be? Okay, so let's, let is, let's break this down a little bit. Let's go into Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're just going to briefly kind of unpack the, some of these descriptors of what took place. So the first thing to see is that what brought them together was their response to the gospel. Okay, this is, this is at the heart of all things that we are as, as the church. And so it begins with the person and work of Jesus and, and a response to his call for repentance and belief, for faith in him. And then some things happen as we come together in a people after that moment. And so here's the life that they began to live together in a response to the grace of Jesus. Verse 42, it says... And they devoted themselves. That's the first part of the first sentence. They devoted themselves. This word devoted is important. This was no Sunday morning only kind of faith for them. They, this is intentionality, a pursuit, a, a, something that doesn't just fit into one part of our life to make us well-rounded people or something that is separate from our family or our vocation or our sexuality or any other things that help define who and where we are. The gospel is at the center of all of those things and our life together as the church, is inextricably intertwined with our knowledge and receipt and living out of the gospel. Those two things are, are completely together. There is no gospel and then church. Church is a part of the gospel. And we're going to see that some more here in just, in just a second. They were a new community transformed by the gospel, called to a new life. In the West, we, t we talk a lot about, I'm going to go to church. And you've heard this before if you've been in, in uh, if you have any church background, of the idea of we don't go to church because church isn't a location. 
church is the people of God, and then there is an incarnate or an embodied aspect of that where we gather together, and that's extremely important. But the building isn't the church. They used to call it, you would go to the meeting house, right? That's a much better term, actually, for this building than the church. This isn't the church, and I call it that all the time, too. But really, this is the meeting house or the sanctuary. This is the place where we come to gather, but it's the church that is gathering inside the building. We are the church. So they devoted themselves and to what? One, to the apostles' teaching. So this is the authoritative teaching of the church. This is the, the teaching that has been revealed to the apostles. And we don't have apostles in the same way today. We don't have apostles in the same way that followed Jesus around and learned from the lips of Jesus himself. But we have their teaching in the scripture uh, as is revealed by, uh, by God himself. So the apostles' teaching for us is what we find in the scripture. And they devoted themselves to this. They devoted themselves to the revealed truth that, that God has given. And so we now don't have apostles that are running around in the same way, but we have the scripture, and the scripture summed up in the historic creeds as well. It's one of the reasons why every time after you hear a sermon preached here in our normal liturgical Sunday services, what comes right after that is the Nicene Creed. Why? Because that is the authoritative summary of what Christians believe. And so anything that you have happened to hear right before that, from whatever man or woman is standing up here and preaching, uh, that right after that is, is accountability, right? That anything that that, person that just, anything that that person just said that is not lined up with the creed, they were wrong. Here's the creed. And it also takes the pressure off of us a little bit as well in the sense of we take this responsibility very seriously. And there's a lot of preparation that we go into in order to properly open the word of God. But it doesn't all rest on our very fallible shoulders. In other words, we don't have to go, oh man, this just church service is going to be awful if I don't perform well. Right? If, I don't, if I don't stir up the people, if I don't do it, if, if some week you go, Dan, like that was the worst sermon I have ever heard in my entire life. You still heard the gospel today because of things like the creed that is the authoritative statement of, of our faith and doesn't depend on the personality of the person who is preaching. And so we remove ourselves then from a place of celebrity pastors. Right? You don't, if you want to be a celebrity pastor, don't be an Anglican pastor. That's not the road to big celebratory um, uh, books about you, right? That's not how that goes. Why? Because we're in submission to something that's greater than ourselves, and all of this doesn't rest on any one person. We are a part of the apostles' teaching and a part of the historic church. The, the, the scripture tells us that we do things like guard the good deposit, Paul tells to Timothy. So there's a deposit of the truth and the doctrine of the church that we are guarding. Or in Jude, it says that talks about the faith once entrusted to the saints. So these, these teachings have been given to us for us to protect, for us to teach, for us to steward well, but it's something that is greater than us. And isn't that wonderful that all truth isn't our responsibility to create, but to listen to and to hear and to accept. Like, what, what, a, what a pressure off the shoulders there that you don't have to be the God of the universe because we already have one. So rest in that.
So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Think about this, the fellowship, community with one another in the gospel as the people of God was a part of the gospel of God. Uh, that they were just a few weeks ago, many of these people were the same people who, uh, who called for the crucifixion of Jesus that still live in Jerusalem now. And so a few weeks ago, they were a riotous crowd. And now they're devoted themselves to fellowship with one another. Peter, who preached that great sermon earlier on in this chapter, would later go on to write this to the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You hear him out of darkness, into the light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Entrance into the church, the people of God, is coming out of something and into a new life, into a new family, into a way of being, into a new way of thinking, into a new way of acting, into a new way of living all around together in the church. You're saved out of something and saved into something that is the people of God. And so church and the gospel are not things that can be separated, but actually in the pursuit of fellowship with one another, we are pressing more deeply into the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were devoted to the fellowship, as should we be as well, to, devote, to be devoted to building relationships with one another, to be intentional about having people in our house for dinner or going out to lunch after church or having coffee or going on a walk together or, or helping people who are in need and, uh, and being helped when we are in need, which is sometimes harder for us than the first one. But we are devoted to this fellowship with one another. When we look around this place, they're just not other people who happen to be here at Redeemer. This is our people. This is our family in profound ways. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread is what it says next. Now, they'll talk about just regular eating in a minute, um, but the breaking of the bread is specifically here, the, the meal that the Lord gave them to share together that shows his presence with them, their unity with one another, and is a foretaste of how all of the things they're experiencing now will one day be fulfilled at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's right, they celebrated communion together. And they devoted themselves to it as a communal act of the gospel. Jesus said, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. That they are, were intentional about coming to this table in the same way that we come to this table as well. Isn't it amazing that what we're trying to do here is to carry on what has been going on from the time of the earliest church? We didn't make any of this up. Like, this wasn't our idea. Uh, well, all of the things that we do are to carry on a great tradition of the church that finds its roots here in Acts chapter 2 and other places as well. 
So finally, the other, last thing it says they devoted themselves to is the prayers. And the definite article here is important, the prayers. Not just prayer, which is important. Prayer in general is important. But specifically here, it says the prayers. In the Greek, it's liturgeo, which is where we get the word liturgy from. It's communal prayers. It's prayers that they prayed together. It's the psalms and the scripture that they had at the time as well, which is why we engage in the practice of liturgy as more than just something aesthetic, something that, oh, I just kind of like that style of worship, but rather as a way of saying we want to speak the scripture. 85% of our liturgy is direct quotes from the, from the scripture itself. We want to use the words of God, the, the apostles' teaching, to speak back to God his praise and his truth uh, that he has given to us. So we're praising not with just our own made-up words, which are good too. You can do that as well. The the creative part of, of ourselves is part of the image of God. But this formative work, we are repeating to God what he has told us about himself. And so we are not only glorifying him, but being shaped and formed ourselves in the process, just as the early church did in the liturgy. So then, here's an amazing sentence. What started to come out of all of this? In verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul. This was no boring church. This was no, we just come in, say our prayers, gather together every now and then, and then leave, check our box. They were filled with awe. And I think our culture right now is, uh, has become suspicious of awe. We, we think it's naive to be in awe of anything. That it's, we don't, we're not in awe, it's just something we haven't quite figured out yet. And so we don't have to be in awe, it's things that we don't understand or things that we're impressed by or something that we just have to explore more deeply or watch more YouTube videos about or Google it or just ask the, the AI bot to explain it all to us, right? Um, and, uh, and so we, we're not in a place of just being amazed and in awe. We've become disenchanted. Because we think everything can be figured out, everything can be mastered, and that we have more of a sense of suspicion than we do of all. But God cannot be completely figured out. God cannot be fully explained or fully communicated. God is not just a God who has given a dead and dry religion and then pulled out and left to watch to see how it all, how it all pans out. The scripture that talks about how the mountains melt like wax before him, that, that, that he is on the great thunder clouds before him as well. This is the same God that is present with us. And so in the gospel, we have a description of a God who is both loving and and comforting and extends his, arm, his arms wide like the father of the prodigal son to receive us, but is not our buddy. Right? A God, we have a God also who is just and pure and majestic and, uh, and, uh, and holy and glorious that we cannot even stand in his presence if it wasn't for his grace. And we have that tension of transcendence and power and beauty and might and comfort and love and joy in the person of our God. It is important for us to regain awe of God. And being in awe of him does not then make him distant. It's all the more amazing that when we are in awe of him, that he wants to be with us and wants us to be with him. And the gospel all the more becomes beautiful to us. 
Awe came upon every soul, and then many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the continued work of the Holy Spirit with healing we see in other places, with the transformation of lives and of, and of souls. We see economic change, actually, that takes place in many places through the work of the church. We see it listed in the scripture as well. And these are the kind of outpourings of the Spirit that we still long for today. And we say, we can ask the question, well, why does it feel like that we don't see that stuff as much anymore? Why do we not see just healings all the time? I would say a couple of things. One, because I don't think that we pray for it like they do most of the time. I don't think that we, we if somebody's sick, we say, we'll pray for you. But do we truly and absolutely believe that our prayer, if it be God's will, could heal that broken bone? If you're like me, we pray with skepticism oftentimes, right? We pray, I know I'm supposed to pray this, but I don't know if he could I don't know if he's really going to do that. And am I kind of naive to really believe that he could do that? And that kind of makes me seem silly. And, and then what if God doesn't do that? And then I've prayed this and he sort of let everybody down. And so maybe I shouldn't pray. Like these folks were praying with a confidence of when we pray for the Lord to move, the Lord is going to move and it's going to happen. And I don't think we pray like that much anymore. The other thing is when we do see miracles, we explain them away. Right? I mean, if we see a miracle, we kind of go, no, that's really great. But part of our mind is going, but there's probably another answer to that as well. And it's just a naive religious person saying that there's a miracle. And so we don't see them even when they happen. So I think that the Holy Spirit and God is still moving in those powerful ways today. We just need to pray for eyes to see them. So then we have this beautiful, wonderful description of a generous community. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We start to see a sacrificial giving here. And not just a giving to the church, which they did because this, that's what supported a lot of the ministries of the church. And we still do so today, um, that we support our local churches and it's an important part of the gospel for us to do that as well. Um, but they also were distributing possessions and goods and distributing them to others as well within the congregation as they had need. They were, they, they were sacrificing their own stuff to make sure that other people had the stuff that they need. And our problem in our culture right now is that we tend to only give from what's left over after we get all the stuff that we want. And then we say... I can't really afford it. I can't afford to give. I can't really afford to, to help. I can't afford to give to the church. I can't afford to help other people. I can't, I can't afford it. When oftentimes we have spent all of our money on all of the things that we want. We have so much stuff. Like it's a, it amazes me how much stuff the Alger family has. Right? Like have you ever moved? You know what that's like when you're moving and, you, and you're like, what? This entire truck is full of our stuff, and they're, and they're at the end, they're going, I think we're going to fit it all in here. And you're like, we can't even fit all our stuff in this truck? I mean, it, that I feel like if we were pioneers at the, uh, at the early in, in, in sort of Western expansion of America, and there was, a, there was a, uh, a train of wagons going west, there'd be like 40 wagons, and they'd go, yeah, this is the Alger stuff. Right? I mean, do you you ever feel like that? Do you ever just feel like we have so much stuff? They did not have anywhere near the amount of stuff that we do. And so their stuff was more precious to them, and they were willing to sell it in order for other people to be able to have what they needed. That is a transformed heart by the gospel that is bigger than just I show up somewhere on a Sunday. 
Right? That, that, is a, that is a radically generous life and one that we should pursue together as well. Then there's a description of their worship lives. Day by day, they attended the temple together. So that's where the corporate gathering of people uh, came together. And they were breaking bread in their homes. So they were eating together in their own homes with one another. Hospitality, pursuing that fellowship. Because we all know there's something special about eating a meal with people. There's something special about that, right? That's why if you're married, like I'm not going to ask any other woman out to dinner, right? This is not a good idea because I have a wife who I love deeply and she would not be very thankful if I was just inviting other women out to dinner. Why? It's just you're just eating things, right? But isn't there something else that's going on with that? Right, And so we have to be careful about how we have those interactions in proper ways because there's something more intimate about the eating of particular meals in particular places together. And so they're pursuing this kind of intimacy with one another in the church, letting people into their house. And when you let people in your house, they see all your dust and all your junk and the stains on the floor because you can't afford to replace your carpet right now not that anybody's ever been to my house, and I'm just sharing vulnerable things about us right now, but uh, um, that, that you have to show people that by bringing them into your house. And that's what this early church did, letting people into those parts of their lives. And that just this generous description, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You hear these great descriptions of, of their attitude and, uh, and, their, uh, and their joy of being together and with God, praising God, it says, and having favor with all the people. They lived so differently within the community of the church that the outside world looking in went, wow. And they had favor with them. They, that the Christian church was a witness to the outside world by how they lived and loved one another. In fact, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus himself said. He said, the world is going to know you're my disciples by not just that you have correct belief or that where you show up on a Sunday morning. What he says is, the world is going to know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Because it's going to be different from the rest of the world. This is what they're devoting themselves to. This is the result of the community that comes out of the gospel of grace. And then it says, the final line, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So because of their witness and because of their intentionality that, and because their life was completely and absolutely changed by the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ and the giving of his Holy Spirit and this new family and this way of seeing the world that they have been brought into, other people are seeing that and also seeing that change take place in their lives. Those who are being saved, those who are repenting, believing, being baptized, brought into this family, where once you were not a people, but now you are a people. This is a great picture of the church, and it would be wonderful if we could just end the sermon here and go, and, and this is how you end it as the, as the preacher, right? You go, so let's just be this church, right? This is inspiration for us. Let's go and be that. I'm in, and we can all go, but there's a lingering question, isn't there? What do you do when you're a part of church in the modern day and it's not always like this. 
This is a really joy. I mean, like, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like this, right? I mean, all of these things, people's lives changing and joy and eating together and being with one another and praising. And I mean, just they all had everything in common. This sounds so wonderful. And then you're like, like, I go, I'm in church. And, uh, and whether it's at Redeemer or whether it's any church anywhere ever, um, that you go, this, it's not always perfect there, right? It's not always perfect. Acts 2, 42 through 47. So, so here's what I hope, um, I think maybe ironically good news, is that the church has always been broken. This isn't a picture of, well, it was always like that back then, and now we've just failed. No, no, no. Read the rest of the scripture. Like this passage is to describe the good things about what was happening in the church, but there were other things that were happening. Remember, this is the same group, many of them, who called out for the crucifixion only months before. And now, all of a sudden, they've come together. Do you think they all knew how to be mature Christians, seeing the world in a different way, completely removed from any traumatic things that had happened and shaped them over the course of their lives, and all the behaviors that were well ingrained in them, that all of a sudden, everyone was immediately a a generous, all-the-time, grace-filled Christian? No. So let me just give you some examples, okay? From the scripture itself. Uh, First of all, Jesus. Judas was an apostle. He was in the church. And he wasn't like a once a month attender of the church, right? I mean, he was a like he was an inner circle member of the church and he betrayed him. And then all of the apostles left him. Peter's like I don't even know who the guy is, right? I mean, he's denying him. This is the founder of the church is is met with this. And then we have this great description here in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 5, just a couple chapters later, we have people who are selling their possessions and goods so that everyone might have what they need, just like we just said. But some people, these two, this husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, right? They, they sell some of their land and they come and they go, yeah, we're giving all the money to the church. We're giving all, we sold this land and everybody's giving their stuff away. And so here we are, we're giving all of our money. Well, they're lying. They're giving some of the money to the church, but they're telling everyone else they're giving all of it because they're trying to lift themselves up in the church. So here's what happens. The husband comes in. Peter goes, um, you said that you gave all of that to the church, but is that true? And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely all of it. And Peter's like, why are you lying? You, you, th- that is not the truth. And so, so, he just, so the guy dies. <laughs> just falls over dead. Read about it. It's Acts chapter 5. Like, um, it's, it's, we're going to have a stewardship sermon after this. Right? That, uh, I mean, he just dies. So here's what happened. They carry him out. Like, like, like some of the young men carry him out, and his wife comes walking in, and nobody says anything. They're just all standing there, and Peter's like, so you uh, sold that land, gave all the money to the church, huh? And she's like, absolutely, every dime. She dies too, right there, in the, and they have to take her out back. These are people lying to the church and dying because of it. Not a perfect church, right? Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 6, there's an argument about the distribution of food. Um, and Greek widows and Hebrew widows are, are being treated differently. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are on a, on a missionary journey, and Mark abandons them, leaves them, and apparently in such a way that really torques off Paul. Because in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are going on another missionary journey, and, they're like, and Barnabas goes, well, we should take Mark with us. And Paul goes, uh-uh, I'm not doing anything with that guy. He left us. He abandoned us. And Barnabas is going, Paul? There's this thing called forgiveness. He's come back around. And Paul's like, uh-uh, not going anywhere with him. And it says they have such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas go different directions. 
Like Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. If you can have an argument with a guy named son of encouragement, there's some friction happening here, right? Or Galatians chapter 2 relates time when Peter is being racist. He is, he's, he's treating Jews and Gentiles differently depending on who's around based on their ethnicity. And so Paul comes, and it says in Galatians 2, I opposed him to his face. That's what it says. So Paul walked up to Peter, and he's like, you cannot do this. You cannot act this way, right? Bam. Like, this is the early church. This is Paul, Peter, Barnabas, Mark, Jesus. Like, these are the people that are trying to live out this Acts 2, 42 through 47 stuff and have these kind of disagreements. Last example I'll give. Uh, Paul writes this really happy letter called Philippians to the Philippians. Uh, and, and he's happy the whole time. I mean, just, just really, really happy. And the whole thing is, just, if you just ever want to, just a happy letter, read Philippians until you get to chapter four, when things are just starting to wrap up. And then he calls out these two women that are having an argument. And he's like, I urge Euodia and I urge Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. So apparently there's two women that are fighting, a little embarrassing that their squabble, whatever that was, has now been immortalized through all time in the scripture. But what you see here is just a normal everyday. We're a bunch of sinners in this place who have not been perfected. And the church has always been this way. Now, that doesn't mean that we go, ah, so it's all fine. No, what should our response be is, one, we see that Jesus said that he's going to come to make all things new. And in Revelation, it talks about a city that we're going to live in, in the midst of a garden, and there will be no more sin. And so what we are right now is a foretaste of what is coming, but it's not fully realized yet. And we can't think about the eschaton. That means that end time. The eschaton is not here now, but it is our surety and our hope that it is coming. And so we strive and live into it. And as we fall short, we come back to our beginnings. What, how did the church begin? A response to grace and mercy and the pursuit of one another in love in amazing ways. And how much, the church doesn't have to be perfect to be an example to the world. The church has to be a witness to the world by how it handles our imperfections with one another. How much of a witness can we be if we can have arguments, disagreements, conflict even with one another and handle it in a way that is loving and forgiving and when we mess up, giving grace and blessing to others where there's reconciliation. When we are in a world right now that tries to, is, is cynical and on the lookout for anything that anybody might say that's even slightly wrong, we're going to assume the worst about them. We're going to make sure that we interpret whatever they say in a way that, uh, that can justify us being angry with them. We paint them as the enemy and then we attack them and then we try to get all the social media people to attack them too. How much more if we're the church says we're going to love our enemy? And that we're going to seek reconciliation. And we're going to find peace. And that we're not going to expect the church or anybody else in the church to be perfect because we're not perfect. If you've ever heard the old saying, right? Like, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go in it because you're going to screw it up. Right? 
What we don't do is we don't pull out and isolate. We don't say, oh, there's, there's brokenness that exists in the church, and so I've become disillusioned, and I'm going to pull out into my own space and just isolate. Because if you become a church of one, that's still a sinful, broken, imperfect church. Right? So we devote ourselves to one another. We devote ourselves to learning grace. We devote ourselves to learning how to break down our own pride. We devote ourselves to pursuing the gospel together. We devote ourselves to learning how to disagree and how to have conflict and how to speak highly and blessing of one another even when there's places where we are in friction with one another because of grace. We have in our services every week confession of our sins and then peace. And the peace is the time when we come to say even if we're in disagreement, can we still come to this table together in unity because at our hearts we are brothers and sisters in Christ? How much will we be a witness to this world and enjoy the favor of the people if they can look upon us as the church and go, they are very different in how they disagree? I want to be more like that. And then we go, yeah, we're trying to learn that from Jesus, right? This is a picture of the church if you're looking for a perfect church, pray that Jesus will return and the church will be perfect. Until then, we devote ourselves to one another and to the Lord, uh, and, we, uh, and we keep our eyes on the eschaton, but we, are, we learn how to have grace with ourselves and with others, which is the heart of why we're here at all, is the amazing, miraculous grace of our God. So we'll always be an imperfect church. Every local church is an imperfect church. But how are we imperfect together in light of the grace of Jesus? And may how we do that well lead us to all of these other things that are described in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. May we be this church. This is where we bring it to that application part. Let's be this church, friends. Let's be this church. So transformed by the gospel that it's different than any other place. And I'm not comparing us against other local churches. I pray this for all local churches. But different from the world outside, the society that doesn't know Christ. Let us be different. Rather than, than gaining our cues and understanding of these things from either our family history or, the, or how the world is working around us, but from the scripture itself, as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And may we be filled with awe and wonder as miraculous signs are done in our midst and we live out generous lives together and we enjoy the favor of the people. Come, Holy Spirit, to this place. Let us be this church. Fall on all of the churches in Greensboro, Winston-Salem, High Point, North Carolina, the world. Fall on your local churches, Lord, in power that they may become this kind of people, this Acts 2, 42 through 47 kind of place where we are so transformed by your grace that we become people of grace. And let us be a witness to the world and transform the world through that difference that comes because we can't do any of this on our own, but the presence and promise of your Holy Spirit can do it within us. So Lord, we call for your grace and your mercy and your initiative and your movement and let Redeemer be a place that we live on grace and in awe of your majesty and in service to the world. Bless your church, Lord, we pray. Amen.